Hello and welcome to episode 17 of the Poisons and Pestilence podcast. I'm all about the basilisk. So far, in what has turned into a bit of a mini-series on the history of gunpowder, we have looked at the emergence of gunpowder weaponry in China, which included designs for certain types of poison smoke-generating weapon, as well as the occasional claim of use. We have seen our gunpowder capture the imagination of weapon designers in China between the 9th and 14th century, and the gunpowder was not only understood as a potential replacement for more long-standing incendiary and smoke-generating devices, but also got folks thinking about how the power of gunpowder could be combined with poisons in fire lances, rockets and shell-type weapons. In this episode, I trace the way in which the spread and adoption of gunpowder in the Middle East and Europe continued to excite scholars, tinkerers and engineers, who were quick to imagine all sorts of fiendish devices which could incorporate gunpowder, and this included weapons designed to poison the enemy. From a modern perspective, it is unsurprising that a new and emerging technology captured people's imaginations and generated many ideas and predictions, some sensible and some more fanciful. After all, for at least the past couple of centuries, groundbreaking technologies have been associated with a predictable cacophony of hype and pearl clutching. Technological hype is also associated with visionaries, grifters and nerds. And to be honest, as we trace the history of gunpowder in the West, it is sometimes quite difficult to know who exactly we're dealing with. After all, often all we have been left with are manuscripts and compendiums, and these in many cases are quite devoid of the context they were produced in, as well as a biographical understanding of the person that cobbled them together. What is clear is that while the history of gunpowder in this era is ultimately a story about the emergence of artillery and handguns in the West, on the fringes of this history is evidence that people were thinking about a broad range of military applications, which extended to the use of poison and disease-based weapons across Europe and the Muslim world. However, there is yet to be a systematic analysis looking squarely at the issue. As a result, I've had to work with the existing secondary sources, which focus more generally on the history of gunpowder and firearms, and then from them identify examples and rabbit holes, and many rabbit holes there are. I really do want to come back to this issue, but I also want to get an episode to you. So in this episode, what you will get from me is a sketch of the bigger picture, populated, I hope, by a number of very interesting characters, as well as some rather bonkers ideas. And one last thing before we start today, I really do need to thank a few people who have helped me in putting together this episode, particularly in dealing with manuscripts and academic studies, which had quite selfishly and short-sightedly been produced in a number of foreign and archaic languages that I couldn't speak, as well as a couple of historians of gunpowder who were kind enough to help out. This includes the stupendous Steph Karras, the amazing Anna Russing, the unbelievable Una Jacob, the awe-inspiring Alexander Samuel, the terrific Tonio Andrade, and the remarkable Raina Leng. As ever, you can find references, further reading suggestions, as well as a couple of mad diagrams in the show notes. I hope you enjoy this show today. So in this episode, we're going to be looking primarily at how knowledge of gunpowder and gunpowder weaponry developed in the Middle East and Europe uh, between the 9th and 17th centuries. To recap some of the major developments covered in previous episodes, we know with the first gunpowder fire lances emerged in China at some time in the 10th century, Around this time, fire arrows and bombs and grenades were also being used, and at the end of the 12th century, uh, rocket arrows were first developed. By the 13th century, this is also extended to metal-barreled handguns and bombards. 
Some of these weapon types also appear to have subvariants, which were designed to produce noxious smoke. We also think that occasionally some of the projectiles fired by these gunpowder weapons may have also had poison tips. During this period of around 300 years, knowledge of both gunpowder and gunpowder weapons spread, primarily via the patchwork of Mongol vassal states which occupied central Eurasia, as well as the trade routes which spanned the Middle East. In northern India, for example, while there is some disagreement in the scholarship, the first references to what appear to be gunpowder rockets appear in the late 13th century, as do references to bamboo tube-based eruptors and incendiary shells. And by the 14th century, the Delhi Sultanate appears to have adopted and refined its own versions of some types of these weapons, and continued to innovate in this area, drawing primarily on Chinese inspiration, until the 15th century, when came the influx of new Western gunpowder weaponry. There was also a Mongol frontier in the Muslim world. During the 13th century, Mongol armies and their vassals continued to push into the Levant through Syria. They would temporarily hold Aleppo in around 1260, before being pushed back by the heavy cavalry and horse archers of the Mameluke Kingdom, which was based around Cairo. It seems likely that a number of Muslim engineers served within Mongol vassal states in the region, who would have acquired knowledge of gunpowder weaponry and this knowledge would have gradually made its way around the great cities and along trade routes in the region. With gunpowder recipes and slightly more ambiguous and contested references to firelands and rocket types weapons appearing in Arabic sources from around this period. We know that at least one Arabic chemist and engineer developed a fascination not only with Chinese gunpowder and weaponry he had heard about, but also with imagining new applications for the black powder. He is known as Hassan al-Ramar, Aramar was probably Syrian, but we know very little else about him. In around 1260, he compiled a list of existing and imagined gunpowder weapon systems, which centred on the propellant and incendiary rather than explosive power of gunpowder. This is part of a compendium which deals with, among other things, the purification of saltpetre, coloured fireworks, for fun, as well as pyrotechnics for use in warfare, including rocket arrows. His work also contains a design for an underwater torpedo, as well as for anti-incendiary measures. It includes reference to magic lamps, which reveal the dead, as well as instructions for the production of poisonous and intoxicating vapours. During the 13th century, such work was part of a broader collection of writings on gunpowder informed by both Chinese military technology, as well as more mythical and technical reflections on the nature of gunpowder and its potentials. And these were making their way west along with the accompanying Arabic chemical expositions on the topic, which were being increasingly translated into European languages by scholars who bridged the Arabic and Christian worlds. Knowledge still travelled slow, however. A comparable mind and scholar working in England at this time was only just getting the faintest whiff of the black powder by the time Al-Ramar could perhaps draw upon a century of Arabic sources on gunpowder. Roger Bacon was a remarkable, independently minded, and apparently quite affable chap, born in southwest England in around 1214. He studied and taught at Oxford and Paris, and so spent much of his career rubbing shoulders with intellectual luminaries of the age. He had a very wide range of intellectual interests, which spanned fields diverse as optics, physics, theology, and natural history. Despite his scholastic background, his work on topics were rarely confined to the study of books, with experimentation being a key part of his process. In his work on optics, for example, he drew heavily on earlier Arabic studies and integrated results from his own experimentation with the reflection and refraction of light. During his career, he embarked on vast projects, 
based on his own estimates from the time, his family would have parted with the modern equivalent of between roughly five and fifteen million dollars in support of his procurement of a vast and by necessity secret personal library, the production of manuscripts, as well as other research-related expenses, which would have put a great strain on his family's wealth, as substantial as it was. His academic biographers tend to have a soft spot for him, in part because of the scope and ambition of his studies, also because of his apparently boundless and childlike curiosity about the world around him. He maintained many friendships throughout his life, corresponding with a vast array of scholars, but it appears his obsession came to dominate every waking hour of his later life. In our story, he is particularly interesting, as his life coincided with the spread of knowledge of gunpowder to Europe. And as a keen tinkerer, sometime alchemist, who had a keen penchant for developing ideas for fanciful technologies, it's not that surprising that he would have been one of the first in Europe to develop an interest in gunpowder. And it is worth reviewing what he had heard and read about this exotic compound, and the potentials he saw in it, around a century before gunpowder weapons started to become established as an aspect of European warfare. The first mention of gunpowder in Bacon's surviving writings can be found in a chain of correspondence which was written in around 1260. The letters reflect an attempt to advance more naturalist and experimental explanations for technologies and events which were usually treated with pious suspicion. The mention of gunpowder is actually incidental in a correspondence which is clearly engaging with ethical and methodological questions while carefully navigating the highly conservative morality of the time. The correspondence also includes various predictions about technological advances, including vehicles which could move without the aid of a beast of burden, an artificial flying machine, diving bells, submarines, suspension bridges, and a ship which could be moved by machines that were piloted by only one man. Among all of this is the incidental reference to gunpowder, which is now regarded as the earliest in Western sources. It refers to the combination of sulphur and saltpetre, which could generate thunder and lightning. This comes in the context of the discussion of other types of incendiary known in the West since classical antiquity, which relied on mixtures involving flammable compounds such as naphtha and petroleum. These ideas are developed further in Opus Majus, a treatise that runs over 800 pages, in a chapter dedicated to scientific experimentation. He apparently describes sound like firecrackers, which he claims were made at that time in many parts of the world. By the late 1260s, it is clear that Bacon had even more familiarity with gunpowder, perhaps including some experimentation, listing its core constituents and discussing means of production, as well as the ability of gunpowder to generate fear and confusion when employed as a weapon. Even someone with the vision of Bacon, however, did not at this time appear to fully appreciate the broad military potentials of gunpowder as a propellant which is something his Arabic counterpart, Al-Ramar, certainly grasped. Although neither him or Al-Ramar gave significant consideration to the more explosive potentials of refined high nitrate gunpowders, which would drive the gunpowder revolution across the Western world. The rapid adoption of handguns and cannons in Europe appears to have occurred because certain lines of development in Chinese gunpowder weapons coincided with the opening up of niches for gunpowder in European warfare. The Europeans essentially came to know Chinese fire drug as gunpowder from the 14th century onwards, as the black powder arrived as part of existing weapon systems such as metal barreled cannon. 
which had been developed by China over the centuries. The specific needs of Europeans would also shape the direction in which these firearms would evolve. For example, in China, fortifications tended to have very thick earthen walls, which were essentially impervious to even the largest bombards, meaning that there was little incentive to develop very large guns. Whereas in Europe, fortifications commonly relied on high stone curtain walls, which of course are more vulnerable to bombardment. By the 1340s, a number of European cities had acquired early versions of the cannon, which often hurled arrows. These simple weapons were usually lit via the barrel rather than a hole of the breech and closely resembled large metal vases, as well as their Chinese counterparts, as did the smaller firelance type weapons which appeared in this era. By the late 14th century, several states across Europe and the Middle East were developing much larger arsenals, which included more sizable weapons. And over the next century, these weapons evolved rapidly to a range of specialised technologies, from the flintlock arquebus to bombards such as the Turkish Dardanelles gun, built in the 15th century and which was so substantial and imposing that it was still in use four centuries later. The spread of gunpowder globally was made possible not only by the spread of the recipe and weapon designs, but also in the development of sulphur mining and saltpeter production, as well as the development in techniques for mixing gunpowder. This led to the production of much more explosive gunpowders, with techniques refined to produce powders better suited to both small and large caliber firearms. Another key innovation was corning, which was a process through which gunpowder was dried after mixing in such a way that encouraged it to clump together in beads of a relatively uniform size. This improved the performance of the powder, but also its shelf life as gunpowder was notorious for absorbing water, which then made it essentially useless. If you were a 17th century landowner, or indeed a tenant, you lived in constant fear of a knock on the door from the saltpetermen, who were contracted by the king to roam the country and dig up saltpeter. They dug under barns and pigeon coops, and even occasionally dug up people's bedrooms, pretty much anywhere where livestock had occupied and it was a source of significant litigation, as well as headaches for monarchs, dependent on securing a steady annual flow of this sought-after substance. Something which was also subject to varying levels of export and import control nationally throughout this period in Europe. Popular non-proliferation, if you will. The saltpeter market was driven by an initial interest in gunpowder by European leaders such as Edward III in the 1340s. The interest, however, turned into a rather crippling dependence by the end of the 17th century, a demand which states found impossible to feed by domestic production alone, and would rely often on foreign imports from across their empires, most notably India. Now it is clear that gunpowder continued to capture the imaginations of military engineers in the centuries that followed. Very often engineers considered practical challenges associated with building, transporting and deploying cannon as well as the issue of producing and storing gunpowder. However, as we will see, the spread of these weapons also sustained a growing community of artillerists, chemists and engineers who went on to develop ideas for a range of much more outlandish weapons, including weapons which could poison, and it is to these we now turn. The following oddities are certainly present in the following works. The caveat here that some appear purely whimsical and there needs to be additional research to find out if any of these monstrosities I'm about to describe were ever actually used. In around 1400, 
a German-born physician and military engineer, found himself living in exile in a remote village in his native homeland, after becoming embroiled in a disastrous crusade against the Turks, the fallout from which seems to have cost him his status as a court physician. He used this time to produce voluminous works on technology, perhaps with the intention of presenting them as a gift to a German monarch and getting back into political favour. His major work, Belfortis, which is an illustrated military manual depicting a vast range of technologies primarily related to warfare and include numerous armoured war chariots and candles which could not be extinguished by wind or rain, as well as rockets, incendiaries and other oddities such as magic lamps, which produced images and distortions through the effects of coloured smokes and tricks of the light. He appears to have synthesised ideas from centuries-old European and potentially Arabic literature, including, for example, the work of our friend Roger Bacon. He also developed some rather interesting ideas of his own. He is credited, for example, with the first uh, depiction of a chastity belt. Among the 320 pages of annotated sketches, we also find reference to poison smoke, as well as the use of smoke as part of tunnel warfare including a design for a defensive tunnel system which can be filled with smoke to overcome enemies. Our next manuscript is a German work which was first compiled at some point around 1420 by an anonymous gunnery meister from southwestern Germany. It dealt with the production and use of gunpowder and siege in field warfare. Numerous versions of the work would appear in later manuscripts on gunpowder, gunnery and military strategy produced in Europe throughout the 15th and 16th century. At least a couple of versions of this work make reference to the use of poison smoke generating balls. I like to imagine they looked a bit like birdseed balls or large chocolate truffles, which could be fired in tunnels occupied by an enemy. These were about the size of an apple and would generate an arsenical smoke. These appear alongside a recipe for what at least one scholar imaginatively described as mouldy cheese water bottles, which contained hydrogen sulphide and could also be used in tunnel warfare. The latter would have produced a toxic and irritating gas, which is sometimes lethal in high enough concentrations, but always absolutely stinks. Next on our tour is the work of Leonardo da Vinci. He also had a few ideas about poison warfare, though of course he had a few ideas about many things around him. Like Bacon, he mixed an almost pathological interest in detail with a lifelong quest to identify and work with underlying rules and principles of the natural world in the construction of new technologies and works of art. He is credited with the earliest designs for a diverse range of technologies. Although it is often difficult to distinguish the practical from his flights of fancy in his frantic sketches, which emerge from a frenetic mind, one moment he would be writing a shopping list or recalling a poem, and the next he'd be scrawling designs for machines which incorporated gears and flywheels. His most famous designs of the flying machine perhaps was more likely a stage prop than a locomotion device. In relation to our journey through the scree of manuscripts from this era, we find reference to asphyxiating sulphur bombs which incorporated feathers, sulphur and arsenic sulphide which seem to have been inspired by weapon designs of German origin as well as what he claimed to be improved poison gas which could be blown by Smith's bellows. He also anticipated the use of poison dust against ships, although it is difficult to argue that his ideas surpass works we've reviewed so far. This passing interest in poison, however, as fleeting as it is, is perhaps understandable 
considering the threat of poison to elites in his region during the time, as well as his familiarity with classical works which also mention poison weapons in passing. Our next manuscript, strangely, has been subject to a recent revival in interest on the internet, thanks in part to the frankly insane illustrations that are found in it. Specifically, the pictures of birds and cats carrying incendiaries, uh, which are being ushered towards an enemy fortification. The work is a consequence of the rapid growth of interest in artillery in the early 16th century, which was accompanied by the production of a number of military manuals across Europe. The work in question is perhaps the most comprehensive and widely distributed work of the era, and was produced by the master gunsmith Franz Helm. Old Franz likely served various German princes in campaigns against Turkish forces, and as such appears to have been largely unencumbered by the moral limits ostensibly placed on the use of poison weapons against fellow Christians. Most of his recipes for poison and poison weapons make use of plant alkaloids such as henbane extracts to poison wells or else arsenic compounds that produce toxic gases when added to smokes bombs. Of all the manuals reviewed so far, however, perhaps the most provocative is that of the Saxon Fielzeugmeister Weit Wolf von Senftenberg, known in English as the Handbook of War Inventions. This includes siege-related weapons, and it also contains some of the earliest depictions we have for explosive booby traps. Not only does this work contain a veritable menagerie of poison weapon systems, as well as significant moralising on the use of these weapons, against Christians at least, it is also vividly illustrated. It is written in a medieval German dialect and has yet to be fully transcribed into English. However, in preparing for this show, a German scholar who has published on this manuscript has kindly sent me some translation notes. And in addition, a CBW expert who is German speaking and has an interest in these sorts of things has also laboriously translated relevant sections for me. The first type of poison weapons dealt with is the poisoning of supplies and smokes. This work suggests how one might poison staple supplies such as bread and clothing, as well as adding mercury, hellebore, or henbane or arsenic to salt, perhaps leaving the corrupted supplies to be found by the enemy. This is something, of course, which seems to anticipate, with some accuracy, the poisoning campaigns seen in more recent wars, including uh, the Rhodesian War in the 1970s, which we dealt with in a previous special. Now, Wolf claims that his knowledge came to him via the Roman court which, as we will see in later episodes when dealing with the Borgia in this era, is of little surprise. There are also suggestions for how one could corrupt water supplies with vegetative or mineral poisons, such as henbane or arsenic. There are also some more extravagant suggestions, uh, such as channeling besieged populations' water supplies through a series of pits which are filled with foul and stinking things, including, perhaps, some of the mixtures we now turn to. In this edition, there is reference to what appears to be hearsay recipes for poisonous mixtures derived from snakes, toads, newts, plants, and other putrid biological materials. Interestingly, there appears to be a logic of concentration applied to the process through which some of these toxins are made. For example, worms are fed toxic substances, allowed to eat each other, before the survivors of this ordeal are processed into some form of monstrous paste which can be burned to produce a toxic smoke. There is a similar process described which involves poisoning chickens and then using the offspring as the basis of a similar poison smoke. Again, all this sounds a bit fanciful, but interestingly seems to revive an idea for a technique of poison production 
which would have felt right at home in the works of Mithridates, the Poison King, who we discussed back in the previous episode, who had been an enemy of Rome over a millennia before, and whose works we know did end up in Rome after his death. In terms of delivery, there is reference to the incorporation of such poisons into letter bombs, or to generate large acrid fires which might overcome encampments, as well as some ideas for throwable incendiaries which contained poisonous smoke. In addition to providing suggestions for recipes for lethal and harassing weapons, there is also a rather curious suggestion for the production of a smoke which could put a whole army to sleep for several hours. This relied on burning a plant which is rather vaguely named in the manuscript but which is fortunately illustrated. I have asked around, uh, the plant looks like licorice to me, and others have suggested the illustration is an almost perfect depiction of licorice milk vetch, which is certainly one of the less potent uh, plant poisons we deal with on this show, and toxicological reviews do not seem to indicate any known sedentary effects. So either they were wrong, or I've misidentified it. I've included an image in the show notes. Any ideas, do let me know, and thanks to Leng for pointing out this century-old mystery. The next work we are looking at was produced in the context of the Thirty Years' War, which was a vast and destructive European conflict which occurred between 1618 and 1648. It was an era of famine, disease and staggering population decline. At some point during the 17th century, an engraver uh, known as Jean Apier Hanselet and a surgeon known as Francois Fribouel appear to have been commissioned to produce military manuals for the Dukes of Lorraine which would focus on weapons and fortifications in a context in which the use of gunpowder and firearms, artillery and incendiary weapons was increasingly widespread. They'd go on to produce two major works, the first in 1620 and a second a decade later. Their work involves a reproduction of designs for tried and tested things like field fortifications and bridges, but also more exploratory designs for weapons which either sprung from the minds of the authors or else had been stumbled upon in earlier works which transmitted Arabic and Chinese designs. A variant of the Battle Ox, for example, appears in this work, which is an unfortunate beast to which rockets and incendiaries are strapped, and it is very reminiscent of images of a comparable ill-fated beast found in earlier Chinese texts. On our journey, however, it is the first work from 1620 which is the most interesting, as it contains a section dedicated to the production and use of poison gunpowder weapons. In a section which contains an engraving of a firepot from which voluminous smoke and flame emerges, we also find reference to poison-containing munitions. This includes instructions for how to make a smoke ball designed to poison enemies, as well as one designed to cause eye irritation. A range of mineral poisons appear in the recipe list for the poison smoke balls, including arsenic, antimony, orpiment, and mercury. In addition, the eye irritating uh, smoke ball uh, derives its toxin from a plant which I think is likely to be ubiquitous euphorbia, which is very common in Europe and associated with alkaline eye injuries. It is also suggested that such recipes could be included in hand-thrown firepots. Our next manuscript was produced by the one-time Lieutenant General of Ordnance, the King of Poland. There is some disagreement about where he was born and his background, but we do know he had a lifelong fascination with artillery, which led him to study in fields such as mathematics, mechanics, hydraulics, architecture, optics and tactics. We also know that he participated in a number of battles and sieges. He is also a very interesting character for our purposes, because he gave consideration to the use of both poisons and pathogens in warfare. 
His name already appears occasionally in the histories of biological and chemical warfare, as many of his remarks are taken to be indicative of the broader ethical disquiet about these weapons within Europe during this era, something we will look at in greater detail in a later episode. Such ethical discomfort, however, does not appear to have stopped him communicating, and perhaps even testing, at least one of these weapons on the battlefield. His major work was translated into English at the end of the 18th century, and it contains sections on calculating the size and weights of munitions. The manufacture of various variants of gunpowder, including so-called silent gunpowder, which we don't think would have worked, as well as guidance for building and proving weapons, the treatment of gunpowder burns, rocketry, recreational fireworks, grenades, a range of handheld firearms, as well as a wide range of artillery munitions. This includes smoke generating and poison munitions. Details of these weapons are provided along with a lengthy moral condemnation of their use against other Christians, something which appears to have been the style in European artillery manuscripts since they emerged in the 15th century. This commentary also points to references to the use of poisoned weapons in antiquity as well as moral prohibitions against them. The work seems to have drawn at least one or two of the works discussed so far in this episode, and includes recipes for smokeballs, which she claims were of German origin, which could blind enemies or overcome those in confined spaces with thick offensive smoke. Next he deals with poison shot. He notes that lead, as compared to iron, is much more likely to lead into infection, and that lead might be able to absorb, or as he say, become infected with a number of toxic mixtures. As part of developing his pet theory that lead can readily adopt the qualities of substances it is soaked in, he points to a number of toxic preparations which could be used for this purpose, which draw on various folk and classical knowledge sources of animal, vegetative and mineral poisons. The list is pretty expansive, but contains some interesting additions. Wolfbane is on there, toad venom appears on there as well. Apparently there are a few particularly poisonous varieties in Europe, such as the Portuguese Natterjack and Iberian Midwife Toad, Monkshood, Mandrake, Nightshade, Spurge, Hellebore, as well as Mercury Sublimate, White Arsenic, Orpiment, as well as what seems today to be a very eclectic mix of organic materials, including rat brains, the foam of mad dogs, bat blood, and oil in which a large number of house spiders have drowned. Not making that up. Finally, the manuscript deals with stink balls, which are described as less harmful and more lawful than the ones previously described. These involve mixing incendiary material with a wide range of organic material, which produces a thick smoke when burned, including the powdered hooves of a horse or mule. I hope that then gives you a sense of what is to be found in these old manuscripts. I'm almost certain many of these macabre flights of fancy never left the page, and would have been somewhat of a damp squib if they had but I do think they provide a fascinating insight into the imaginations of would-be weaponeers in this era, and as we will see in later episodes, the broader moral and political context they were working in is also fascinating. Today I have only looked at a handful of manuscripts that I thought were of particular interest, and I am certain there must be dozens out there which also deal with both technological and ethical aspects which are relevant to our quest. So as limited as today's study has been, what I can probably say quite safely is that a number of themes have emerged. First, there is a clear ethical squeamishness about some of these weapons, which in part might reflect a broader disquiet raised by the emergence of gunpowder more generally, but also a more specific unease about the use of poisons in weapons. 
In addition, however, I suspect that in an era in which the dark arts and technological discovery were not always predictably distinguished, the moralizing found within many of these texts also represented an attempt by authors to protect themselves and perhaps their sponsors from persecution within religiously pious societies. It was also clearly a period in which the wider availability of older knowledge found in classical works was also providing inspiration to inventors. In ending the show, I think it's probably worth reiterating that I think there is still much to uncover here, and there also remains a need to place such ideas in the context of more substantial quests to unearth allegations of use in this era. And on that note, I shall leave you and return to the archives, and I will see you next time as we continue our antisocial history of chemical and biological weapons and warfare on the Poisons and Pestilence podcast.